There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews. Greg, good to see you again. Good to see you. I got something for you. Plug yours if you want, but it goes something like this. Good morning, India. You know where that comes from? Well, I remember good morning, Vietnam. <laughs> it, it is, of course, a reference to Robin Williams and the show Good Morning Vietnam. But I wanted to say good morning to India because I've been tracking through our analytics where our podcasts are being listened to. And it's surprising to me that somebody in India started listening to it. Wow. It's kind of cool. I expected that, yeah. So I guess it just talks about this age of technology that we discussed last week where we were talking about robo-advisors, fintech or financial technology, artificial intelligence, things of that nature, and I guess how the world is just so connected. So I was on another podcast last week, not on, but listening to one, and the author or the guest, I don't know what you say, but anyways, he mentioned something called ACOM. Have you ever heard about this? I haven't heard of it, no. So he referenced it as algorithmic commerce, which is different than e-com or electronic commerce. And what he talked about was there are developments to have click-free purchasing, which is... How does that work? Well, on Amazon, and again, not saying somebody should invest in Amazon, just saying that if you go to the Amazon website and you purchase something, there is an option where you can just purchase it. Like it's just one click and it just already has your information and it just sends it to you. I think my family uses that liberally. (laughs) Well, you might not like this then because there are things in the works to have no-click purchasing where this is like uh, internet of things, internet of everything, how your past purchase history. So let's say it's a grocery store. It will just know what you've purchased in the past to be delivered. It will know when you purchased it and it will just create a purchase order for you and just send it to you. That's a little scary. That is scary. And kind of cool. Change is a constant, as we talk about, and that's all around us. But today, we're not here to talk about these things. We're just going off on a tangent a little bit. But in the future, Greg, I know we are going to talk about the Internet of Things and the Internet of Everything and how it relates back to this discussion on robo-advisors and financial technology. But today, we're talking about something completely different. We're going to be talking about language and various investment themes or sayings. And I know that you found an article recently from a company, and I'll let you talk about that in a minute. That company has a couple of employees that run a podcast called Animal Spirits. I know you listen listened to it. Great podcast. Yep. So actually, Ben Carlson from Animal Spirits is going to be on one of our episodes in the near future. Well, that's great. So I'll leave it with you, Greg. Tell us what we're doing today. Well, I was reading an article recently by Barry Ritholds. Barry Ritholds is a Bloomberg opinion columnist, and he founded a company called Ritholds Wealth Management, and Ben Carlson is part of that team. Barry was also the chief executive and director of an equity research firm called Fusion IQ, and is the author of a book called Bailout Nation. So in this particular article, he compiled what he considered some of the most meaningless phrases in finance. And let's take a look at some of his favorites, and we're going to blend in some of our favorites as well. So 
Thank you, Barry, for getting us on this track. And let's talk about some of his, which are also some of ours. So the first one is people when they say, don't get complacent. What do you mean by that? Well, that's a good question. What does it mean? So I guess a lot of people think, oh, you can't get complacent in the stock market. You got to be nimble. You got to be prepared to move ahead. And the question is, well, what does an investor do with that little bit of advice? So how does lack of complacency show up in an investment portfolio? I mean, should people start liquidating some of their holdings or they should be on the lookout for something that nobody expects, but something that may came along? Now, that sounds a lot like active trading and market timing, that type of thing. Well, that's right. And it's not particularly actionable. If somebody says, oh, you've got to be nimble or don't get complacent, what do you do with that? As Barry says, as someone in the advice business, we like to offer specific and identifiable actions like you should buy this, you should rebalance your portfolio, things like that. But being complacent or being nimble, those just aren't things that the average investor is able to execute on his own. So there's that one. Number two, profit-taking. This one you hear a lot of these days. Every time there's a correction in the market or the market goes down after having gone up for a couple of days or a week or a month even, they always say, well, people are taking profits. And what does that really mean? I mean, because there's a buyer for every seller, and this is going to be one of the themes we talk about a lot today, is just every time there's a stock transaction, somebody is buying a stock and somebody is selling a stock. The buyer is using cash to purchase that stock and the seller is taking cash. And so even though on one side of the trade, possibly the person who is selling had bought it at a lower price and is taking profits, the person who is buying is getting invested. I got to tell you though, I take exception to this one, this profit taking, because we do hear it a lot. People will call in and say, well, the market's down because people are taking profits today. I mean, I have to think, well, actually I know that retail investors on whole move the markets very little. So if somebody says, well, yeah, I mean, people are, I don't know, buying Tesla or selling Tesla, not an endorsement of Tesla, of course, but does it really move the market because one retail investor is taking profits or seeking opportunity? Probably not. And when you look at the large amount of program trading and algorithmic trading and things like that, I mean, that's where there's probably, these are just programs that kick in at certain price levels or in response to certain news. And it just seems a little too simplistic to say, oh, it's profit taking. Well, and actually, if you link it back to our discussion about algorithmic commerce and you've got algorithmic trading, I guess somebody could just have their trades completed without even thinking about them. Well, for sure. And so that actually leads into our next one, which is, well, there's more buyers than sellers. So anytime the market goes up, people say, oh, there's more buyers than sellers. And when it goes down, they say, well, there's more sellers than buyers. And of course, as we know, there has to be exactly the same number of buyers and sellers because every stock out there has an owner. And so what they really mean is there's more buyers than sellers at a particular price level. Either a buyer's more motivated at a price level or a seller's more motivated at a price level. Exactly. When you look at any stock and you look at the orders, the bid-ask spread, but you can look at the orders and say, well, how many orders are there to buy a particular stock at a particular price? And you can always see there's a whole lot of buyers lined up at prices lower than the current price. And there's always a lot of sellers lined up at prices higher than the current price as well. So basically all the phrase means is more buyers than sellers at a particular price. And if buyers are particularly motivated, then they may be willing to pay a higher price in order to get their hands on a stock. 
Well, let's take that one step further, though, because if you have, as you say, when you go to buy or sell a stock, we can look in the board. It will show you who wants to buy it, how many, at what price, and who wants to sell it, how many, at what price. But it doesn't show you dark pools. It doesn't show you flash trading. So those are things that can't be represented in that order board. Well, and it also doesn't show you market orders because every market order is filled immediately. And what a market order is, is when somebody goes in and says, okay, I want to buy shares of a company and I'll pay whatever price is the current best ask price. Then if the next asking price is $2 higher than the last trade, then you're going to pay $2 more. And so market orders are always coming in and will always move the price to the next level, whether it's up or down, depending on the motivation of the buyer or the seller. So again, more buyers than sellers doesn't really make sense unless you're talking about a particular price level because there is only one buyer for every seller. Or there's not a transaction. That's correct. Exactly. And that's something we've talked about in past episodes too. Yeah, that's right. Here's a good one. The stock market hates uncertainty. Well, and that's been a big popular phrase this year because, of course, this is the year of uncertainty. We've got COVID. We've got a presidential election, a highly divided U.S. right now. There's rioting with regards to civil rights. And if there was ever a year full of uncertainty, this is it. But the bottom line is there's always uncertainty. Because if there was only certainty, then who was going to take the opposite side of the trade? If you knew that everything was good and it's going to be clear sailing, why would anybody want to sell a stock? And for anyone who wanted to buy stock, there would be nothing to buy. So uncertainty is part of investing. And that's just one of the risks that we have. Well, I want to pick up on that a little bit because I was also reading a phrase that I really liked. And it was that buying a stock is not investing. Just simply buying, if you pick a stock, I don't care which one, and you say, I want to buy that stock, that's just speculating. Correct. Absolutely. What's the next phrase we're looking at? Here's a good one, which always works in hindsight, and it says the easy money's already been made. So that works in hindsight, and what it really means is, darn it, I missed it. I missed buying in when things were cheaper, and now they're more expensive, so now the easy money's been made. So that's the fear of missing out. Exactly. And that applies in all sorts of asset purchases, whether it's stocks or real estate. How many times have you heard that? Oh my gosh, that vacation property was $200,000 and now it's $800,000. Why didn't I buy it then? They made the easy money when they bought it for 200000 I mean, that's strictly hindsight bias. We all have it. And it's basically, it's frustration with not having been involved in something that made money the last time. Well, actually, I remember my uncle telling me one time, he's since deceased, that he was bragging to me that the house that they lived in, he had bought for $7,000 in Calgary. And he was bragging to me that it was worth, I don't know, $700,000 or something like that. But I'm not sure the point because there's no way I would have been able to participate in a $7,000 purchase because that was done in like, I don't know, 1950 something. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So how is it that I missed out on that? Exactly. (laughs) You should have been there to pick up that opportunity. Here's another good one. And you hear this a lot when they talk about when stock prices drop, sometimes you'll hear, well, the earnings missed the estimates. That's kind of a backward statement because when you think about it, analysts create estimates with regards to a company's quarterly profit. And what they're doing is they're taking everything that's known, which is everything that the company publishes and sales data and all sorts of things like that. And then they make an educated guess 
as to what the future data is going to look like. And so they're always making a guess. And then when they look at all of the analysts, they come up with what they call a consensus estimate, which is just, here's the 20 analysts that cover this stock, and here's what they think the quarterly profit is going to be. And of course, when the quarterly profit comes in possibly lower than what was expected, then the price reacts. But the earnings didn't miss the estimate. What happened was the estimate missed the earnings because the earnings are the facts and the estimates are just opinions and guesses as to what might happen in the future. With that, isn't it interesting that if they miss, so as you say, companies will give their forecasts to analysts. The analysts will then create an estimation of what they think the price will be. The company, let's say they miss the earnings, like you said, the stock may react negatively. Correct. Okay, that kind of makes sense. But let's say they meet their earnings and the stock price goes down. That happens. Sure. And you have to think, well, why does that happen? If they've told us they're going to make this much money, they've come in and said, we made exactly that much money, but the stock price goes down because the market is saying, well, we expected you to make more. That's one of the most hilarious ones that I like to talk about, which is you'll hear sometimes that the market is expecting an earnings upside surprise. <laughs> so, like, how do you expect a surprise? I mean, if, it's, if you're expecting it, it can hardly be a surprise. And yet, that's exactly what can happen. And you just mentioned a company hits the earnings estimate, but the market's disappointed because they were expecting a surprise. And sometimes what you'll also find is that, well, they hit the earnings estimate, but they gave some forward guidance that was disappointing based on what the analyst previous forward guidance was. So you did okay the last quarter, but we're not sure how you're going to do the next quarter. It's just, it's kind of a bizarre sort of oxymoron to expect a surprise. Well, the worst example of that that I've seen is, let's say they beat their earnings dramatically. Well, then analysts come out and say, well, they can't replicate that the next quarter. So the stock goes down maybe. (laughs) So if you wrap it up, it doesn't make sense. So actually your description of how earnings didn't miss the estimates, the How did you say it? The estimates missed the earnings. Makes more sense. Yeah, the estimates were wrong. These are the actual earnings. You can't argue about facts. Well, we shouldn't argue about facts, but sometimes that happens. Here's one when they say it's already in the price. It's baked in. And that's kind of tough because when you think about it, and we've talked about this on this podcast previously, we believe that in efficient markets, as was identified by Nobel laureate Eugene Fama, We believe at least the efficient market hypothesis states that at any particular time, the price of a stock reflects all of the known information about that particular company and the decisions of buyers and sellers. Those are made based on the fact that, well, this is the fair price at the current level. Because of all the information that's known. Exactly. But new and unknown information typically is not in the price. So when you get a sudden surge or a sell-off in stocks when new information gets reflected, obviously that wasn't in the price. I've got a good example of this. I'm going to use their name because we're not recommending any particular stocks. Of course not. Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines. Okay, let's say you were buying that stock in, I don't know, December. It probably was pretty expensive because they didn't know about an upcoming global pandemic of biblical proportions that would completely stop all cruise line activity. So how can that be baked into the price? That's right. It couldn't have been. And it wasn't. And because you can't bake in something that's unknown. So when it became known, the price was adjusted. Exactly. New information is always being reflected in prices. And so prices can move for a long time in one direction until something new that was unexpected 
happens, and then you see what the result of that is. And then you say it's expected that it was unexpected? Exactly. <laughs> you need to expect those surprises. <laughs> hey, the last one on this list of berries is one of your favorites. Oh, 110%. Yeah. Like, exactly. It's a bit of a peeve of mine. As you know, I like to watch this show called Survivor. And in the challenges, a lot of the participants will say, well, I gave it 150%, which is just impossible. You can't give 50% more than 100%. You can only give 100%. So Barry talks about giving, why stop at 110%? Why not say you gave it 2,000% or 100,000% or a billion percent? I mean, it doesn't matter once you go over 100. That's right. It's just a nonsensical statement. Well, let's talk about nonsensical statements and phrases. There was an article put out in 2016, and it was put out, I don't even know where, but it just showed some phrases. They did a survey of investors, and they used these phrases of certain investment types and asked the investors what they thought of them. So one of them was called a forward yield disbursement bond. And as you and I know, Greg, there is no such thing. No. That bonds pay in arrears. They don't pay up front, you own a bond for, let's say, a year, and you get two interest payments, typically, every six months after owning it. That's right. And when you sell that bond to somebody else, they owe you the accrued interest for the number of days that you owned it. That's right. So this whole idea of forward yield disbursement bonds, just there's no such thing. Now, there is somebody that we're close with that actually happened to work on a bond desk in New York City. And just for fun, I asked them, when you worked at that bond desk, did you ever sell any forward yield disbursement bonds? And do you remember his answer, Greg? I think so. Yeah. Well, what was it? Well, that was his answer. I think we <laughs> sold some of those. I mean, we had a little chuckle to ourselves about because there's no such thing as a forward yield disbursement bond. Another one they talked about were white chip stocks. And this is in reference to, I guess, the traditional blue chip stocks. So blue chip stocks being what, like dividend paying, big companies, Old companies, long track records, things like that. Do you remember what the reference was to white chip stocks? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I can't remember right now. But anyways, there was a number of these things, these phrases put out, and they just were fake. And the point of the article was to point out to investors that you can be fooled by the language. And the things that we often hear from, we're kind of picking on analysts. We don't mean to. Analysts, a lot of them do good work when they try hard. And they've got a very difficult job. For sure. They're trying to forecast the future, like a, I don't know, a crystal ball type of thing. But the things we often hear are, well, that company has a clean balance sheet or excellent management. I mean, so what? Like, what's a clean balance sheet? I think you're right on two counts. First of all, I think you do have to accept that analysts have a very difficult job. And where they do add value is, I think, in some cases, just helping people to understand what exactly, how is that company financially structured? And are there significant issues? Of course, we don't look at companies on an individual basis. We look to stocks and look at the characteristics of those stocks and the characteristics of the companies that issue those stocks. And those are the kind of things that we can look at on a larger scale. But they do a good job on a quantitative basis of analyzing company balance sheets and things. And that's the part of the job that they do extremely well. Predicting the future, a little bit more difficult predicting what prices stocks should trade at relative to their earnings, also difficult. So there you go. So there's some of the meaningless statements that you hear about finance, but there's also some statements that are actually hazardous. 
when they're used the wrong way or when they're used in general. For example, this one is classic. This time it's different. And we addressed this on our episode about U.S. elections and the market. That's right. And John Templeton said those are the four most dangerous words in investing. I think the bottom line and what he was trying to say is there will always be different reasons for things happening like a stock sell-off or a recession. And they may be caused by different things, but it doesn't mean that it's different. And in fact, the cycles that we've been through tend to repeat themselves over time. And the stock market, there's always going to be unforeseen ups and downs, but we know for a fact that historically the stock market has gone up more than it's gone down. Well, and let's talk about the next one, buy low, sell high. Where I see this one these days is when you're talking to investors, maybe back in more so in the spring, and the common statement was, well, not for us, but I heard it a lot, was I want to get out and then I want to buy back in once things get better. That's the opposite of buying low and selling high. That's selling low and buying high. Exactly. And buy low, sell high. That's kind of simplistic. Of course, everybody would like to be able to do that. But again, as you point out, and particularly when you look back to periods of time when the stock market or stock prices are at their lows, it's also when everything is completely bleak and it looks like everything is going to zero. So whether we're talking about March 23rd, when the pandemic really reached a peak of hysteria and the world economy was shut down. Or even back to March 7th, 2009. Absolutely. When all the headlines said the market is not going to get better. And that was the absolute low on the global credit crisis. And that was a 50% decline from the high. So when everything was looking just horrible, sure, that would have been the best time to buy. But it's not really a human characteristic that people go rushing towards risk when, in fact, when things seem bleak, you typically want to avoid it, not get closer to it. So that one kind of is a tough one. Because they're waiting for what? They're waiting for the pullback. That's another one. I'm waiting for the pullback. And that ties into what we were just talking about, of course. And that suggests that there's some way that we can tell when a downturn is actually a pullback as opposed to a simple one-day sell-off. And really, it's all about market timing. And we know from previous discussions that that's virtually impossible to do. The other saying out there is, bulls make money, bears make money, and pigs get slaughtered. Now, this sounds pretty harsh, (laughs) but... I think the point of it being that people that think that they're nimble trading in and out of markets just can't overcome market cycles themselves. That's right. Exactly. Here's a funny one. John Stewart of The Daily Show, he had a great line. He said, if I'd only followed CNBC's advice, I'd have a million dollars today. And then he said, provided I'd started with a hundred million (laughs) dollars. So I guess the idea is don't put too much stock in daily commentary from CNBC or BNN here in Canada, and because their job is to sell advertising. They have to keep it interesting. They have to keep it exciting and keep people engaged so that they're exposed to the advertising. And what you really need is somebody that knows your situation to help you develop a portfolio that works for you. And not knocking any of those news outlets. It's just, as you say, it's headlines sell advertising dollars. Exactly. And we often refer to the headlines as entertainment advice. It's not really actionable advice. It should be in the entertainment column. Well, and we also know that headlines hurt hairlines. And <laughs> You're still on that there. one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you touched a nerve. Okay, well, let's talk about some wise investing phrases. 
and we're just having some fun with this episode, but one of them that we were reading was, I'd compare stock pickers to astrologers, but I don't want to badmouth astrologers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's kind and, of funny. And here's one. Warren Buffett says, when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. And I think that's all with regards to like the, they have various expressions, rising tide lifts all boats. When the market is going up, it goes up. And when it comes down, if it went up as it did in 99 with all tech stocks, and then when everything hit the fan and tech stocks dropped by 75 or 80%, you saw who was exposed. Well, and that as John Maynard Keynes wrote, markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent, just like that. And listen, we're all guilty of that. I do the same thing. I say, oh my gosh, this doesn't make any sense. Why is the market so irrational? Why is it going up when we're in the middle of a pandemic? You can't fight it. Well, that leads directly into those behavioral biases that we talked about. And I know I've mentioned it a few times, but the whole fear of missing out, but also the fear of being in. So when markets are going down because they're irrational, perhaps you just need to get out and you can't, or you feel that way anyways. Well, and this next one was by Benjamin Graham, who of course was the legendary value investor from the 1930s. And he said back then the investor's chief problem even his worst enemy is likely to be himself. And that's just talking, that was the first early glimpse at behavioral economics and behavioral finance. Well, there's a real link there because Benjamin Graham was Warren Buffett's professor. He was, and he was all about fundamental analysis and trying to predict if a stock is a good value at a particular price. The next one, if you have trouble imagining a 20% loss in the stock market, you shouldn't be in stocks. This one always comes to fruition when markets are going down because everybody's risk tolerance level when they're high is high. But when markets correct, the real risk tolerance level becomes apparent. Absolutely right. And yeah, talking about percentage losses and imagining that and actually experiencing it are two different things. And people need to be able to visualize how that would feel. Well, and if you think about it, like, let's say you're shopping, not the algorithmic commerce, but you actually went into a store, your favorite store, and your favorite pair of pants were 20% off, would you be inclined to buy them? That's a question. Yep. Well, why would you buy them? Well, and you should buy them because they're on sale. They're on sale. But yet, when we look at the stock market, and the stock market can go down 20%, as is evident from March, very quickly. Yes. But investors, in general, just have a hard time investing at that time or buying that pair of pants. Absolutely. And so let's finish off with this last one, because this is the way we'd like all of our listeners to behave. And that is investing should be more like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. Not very exciting. (laughs) You should just sit back and let whatever happens, happens and not get too emotionally involved. (laughs) Well, and watching the grass grow could also relate to rebalancing. Because I know when I'm watching my grass grow in my backyard, there's patches that tend to grow at different speeds than other patches. And the only way I can get them back to the optimal height is to mow it. Okay. (laughs) Good metaphor. (laughs) Or rebalance it. (laughs) So Greg, what does it all mean? What do we learn today? Well, I think this was just kind of a look at a lot of the verbiage that you hear with regards to investing and how a lot of the stuff that you do hear, whether it's on business news or any other sources, a lot of it is meaningless. And some of it is funny, but most of it is not actionable. 
And what we really want to do is focus on things that are actionable, things that we can control. And we've talked about that a lot in the past, and we'll talk about it more in the future. So that's what we've learned. Right on. Well, listen, to all of our listeners out there, be you in India, Taiwan, Poland, the United Kingdom, the United States, etc., we really would appreciate some feedback on any of the episodes that we've done to date. We want to thank our editor, Matthew Passy. I don't think we've actually ever thanked him, but we want to make sure that we recognize the work that he does on our episodes. And we hope that people will come back and join us. Now, just for fun, a couple of things, Greg, anything you're reading or watching these days? Well, actually, rather than, I wouldn't say this is particularly fun, I'd just like to make a brief shout out to the Canadian healthcare system. Why is that? Because as you know, two days ago, I was sitting in my office and I have a torn meniscus in my right knee and just swinging around in my chair, my knee locked. I was unable to walk and in extreme pain, couldn't drive. And I made a quick call to the surgeon who has been treating me and he got me in for surgery yesterday Tuesday. And here I am today, Wednesday, back in the office. The knee feels great. I'm walking around like it never happened. So we should have recorded this yesterday when you were on your painkillers. That would have been even better (laughs) or funnier. (laughs) Anyway, so just something current that people to think about. Right on. Well, thanks for joining us today on the free lunch. And we hope to have you back next time when we will be talking about something even more interesting. There you go. We'll see you next time. All right. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc. 2020.